Inside 20, for those who desire to hunt close. Brought to you by Traditional Bow Hunters of Georgia, Big Jim's Bow Company, Gunshy Archery, Vantage Point Archery, Custom Kings Traditional Archery, and Triple T Strings. Inside 20 is a separate entity from our sponsors. The information shared from each podcast are the beliefs of the Inside 20 associates and the guests participating. Tonight, we wanted to bring on someone who's an expert in a field that we haven't talked about much, and that's bushcraft. This guest tonight leads survival classes. He's a bow hunter and is dedicated to utilizing raw resources in their max capacity. We would like to welcome Rick Spicer. Thank you, guys. Nice to have you on, Rick. It's, it's going to be fun talking to you, man. We um we don't know much about bushcraft, so I hope you can enlighten us. <laughs> well, I'll certainly do my best. <laughs> well, why don't you start us off and um, tell, a little, tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from, and how long you've been practicing uh, bushcraft skills. Uh, sure thing. So I'm, I'm uh, kind of born and raised in Arkansas. I still live in Arkansas. I grew up uh, out just outside of Memphis on the Arkansas side in East Arkansas. And um, like a lot of young kids in Arkansas, grew up hunting fishing with my dad. You know, that's my background. And um, But my dad was never much of a bow hunter. He predominantly, like when I was growing up, we hunted with firearms. And I started shooting a bow when I was probably a young teenager, but, uh, you know, didn't know what I was doing and, and didn't take it super seriously i just thought it was fun and um one thing led to another and for whatever reason i think throughout my life i've always seeked out hard ways of doing things it didn't matter what it was if it was fishing it was fly fishing if it was you know hunting it was archery and then traditional and then primitive if it was I was a climbing instructor for a long time. If it was climbing, it was it was traditional climbing or, or what's often referred to as trad climbing. Um, and so any discipline that, that I had interest in, I always seeked out the, the version of it that had the most challenge because I, I just feel like I, it's more interesting to me. And the greater the challenge, the greater the reward. And even if you don't, fully succeed at it you learn a whole bunch of stuff and it's just interesting um and so that's a little bit just kind of quickly about my background but i currently live in Fayetteville Arkansas um i'm a part owner of a a kind of an old school equipment shop called pack rat um the business just turned 50 years old this year so that's pretty cool um and i've been working there for almost half that amount of time about 24 years and um we just like being part of our community, you know, having folks come in that are going on cool trips, uh, you know, hiking, uh, paddling, hunting, whatever it is, and kind of helping them out, you know, getting equipped for that journey and, and hopefully being a resource for those folks. And so um, I'm married. I got two kids. Fortunately, they both love being outside. And, and that's a whole lot of what my life is about these days is getting my kids outdoors and um, you know, whether it's fishing or shooting bows or camping or whatever, um, doesn't really matter to me as long as we're doing it outside. That's awesome, man. Uh, it sounds like you, uh, you found your calling, um, finding, um, finding that place to work. That's, uh, that's really cool. Uh, it's been a great opportunity for me. Uh, the, the folks that started that business, um, back in the seventies, you know, um, they were in a lot of ways, almost like like a second set of parents to me and uh they've 
given provided me with a lot of opportunities and a lot of of uh just general opportunity to be able to sort of craft or play a role anyway in crafting that business into what it has become today and you know before i started there uh there wasn't any bushcraft stuff going on there wasn't any archery stuff going on and and now we have a a fairly good you know reputation and for both traditional archery and bushcraft and, and that type of stuff and um, so it's pretty cool when you work for a place where you can implement your own passions and make that part of your day-to-day uh, career. And so I, I'm, I'm grateful to those folks for allowing me to have a chance to do that. Yeah, certainly not hard to stay inspired when you uh, when you work work like that, huh? Yeah, it's good. The problem, my problem is, is there's too many things, right? Like I love a lot of different things, and um, I've always, for most of my life, for better or worse. I've never been much of a specialist in anything. I mean, there's there's probably people that might disagree with me and, and to, to some extent on certain things because I am a little obsessive over whatever I'm into. Um, but at the same time, I've kind of always been sort of an 80-20 guy. Like I'm I'm about willing to put 80 or enough effort into something that I, where I can gain 80% of efficiency in that particular discipline. But the amount of effort it requires in order to, you know, attain 90% or more mastery in anything is usually by that point, I sort of like, all right, I feel okay about where I'm at. Now I'm sort of ready to go on another journey or, or, or like tackle some other uh, thing and, and move on to it. And that's just for better or worse. It's kind of always how I've operated. I don't think anything's wrong with that mentality. It's funny. I'm a lot like that. And my wife tells me that I have an obsessive personality and she says that, uh, you know, I have to be careful what I get into because I just, it just takes off from there and it grows and, and spirals. Um, and it's a funny, good example yeah. of that is she got into running just to try to, you know, lose weight and get in good shape and got into that. Yeah. And next thing you know, I'm, I'm thinking to myself, it'd be something good to get into. And then end of the year, uh, I'm, I'm planning a half marathon for us to run and I ended up running the full thing and she ended up doing like a 10 K and it's just I don't know. It's just how, and I've never done that before. I uh, never enjoyed it and ne- never really got into it, but just, I think that personality, it oftentimes it, you do have to focus and be intentional to not pull away from things that should be priority and put other things in the, that place. But I think you can be successful by doing that because you, I mean, you just become so engulfed with it that you, uh, you constantly are thinking about like, how can you improve or do better? And you push yourself and, I think a lot of that mentality um, can play a big role into like traditional archery and being successful, right? And being able to push through. Yeah, I completely agree. And then I think the other side of it, from my perspective, is there's just too much cool stuff to do. You know, it's like I get excited about, you know, I still do some mountaineering and stuff. I spent a lot of years doing that, but I, I really enjoy like climbing mountains. I like canyoneering. I spent a lot of time in southern Utah. I love survival skills. I love shooting a bow and arrow. I like backpacking. Uh, I like paddling. I love fishing. I mean, there's just so many fun things to do. It's like I'm a little ADD in that respect, I think, because I'm I'm sort of bouncing from one thing or another. It's hard for me to like nail any one thing down or or know myself down, I guess, to focus on that. But to me, it's just fun that way. And it's like, you know what? I don't have to choose, so I'm not going to. I'm just going to do it all <laughs> or at least yeah. try to do my best. 
do it all. <laughs> yeah, well, life's too short. You might as well do it now, right? And you think you're going to do it later. You're not. Today's the day to do it. Today's the day to try it. We keep trying to preach that yeah. to folks. You know, if you're on the on the verge of like wanting to try something and you're too hesitant because you don't know if you'll be good at it or not, like you're, you're making the mistake of one day you'll regret not trying it, not doing it, not being good at it. It's a different thing. Yeah, 100%, man. Uh, there's no day like today and there's no guarantee for tomorrow. So you may as well get after it. That's the way I look at it. So I don't want to skim past it. I have some things I want to ask you, but can you tell me a little more about the history of pack rat just because 50 years, I and mean, that's a, that's a long time to be in business. And I think that's, yeah, um, that's something to be proud of. So yeah. Can, if you can give us some history on it, that would be awesome. Yeah. So in 1973, um, a husband and wife, a couple named Scott and Carolyn Crook started that business and they were both uh, in, in the University of Arkansas uh, PhD program to become chemists. And uh, it's kind of a crazy story, but long story short, uh, the gentleman, Scott, he figured out that he was allergic to organic compounds, which is, was the very thing that he was going to school to do professionally. And so he had to drop out of this program. Um, and so his wife continued on uh, and became a chemist and had a, has a long career in uh, pathology, uh, doing these laboratory inspections and all kinds of things. And he decided, decided to start this store. And it was, a, as like most mom and pop businesses, kind of started in their garage and grew very slowly over a number of, year, number of years. And uh, eventually, in 2002, we moved into the current building that we're in. And, and our building is one of our kind of most proud achievements over the years. So we have a 15,000 square foot log cabin that is or was harvested from uh, all lodgepole pine just north of Yellowstone in Montana. And it was all wow. shipped down to, to build this building. And so there's literally no other building in, in the state like this particular building. Um, and it was kind of uh, their dream, you know, that they they worked uh, 30 plus years to be able to pull off. And quite frankly, in today's economy, it'd be impossible to do what they did uh, 20 years ago. Um, and so it was just kind of a cool situation of right place at the right time um, to be able to kind of do uh, what they did. But I tell people a lot, as cool as the building is, Packerat is the people, like the people that work there. And I'm privileged to get to work with a, a really good group of people, um, really skilled outdoors men and women that enjoy doing a wide variety of things from paddling, fishing, hunting, uh, a lot of just generalists, though, folks that just love being outside and, and you know, hiking and whatever. Um, and it's just a real cool place to go get to work every day. And I get to talk with really interesting customers that are going all over the place to do cool stuff. I mean, it could be going to the Buffalo River here in our backyard to, you know, who knows, going overseas on some big hiking trip or traveling to uh, Alaska to go hunting or who knows. Uh, and it's just been a lot of fun to get to be uh, part of that whole thing over the years. That's really cool, man. Um, I, I actually saw the building you're, you're talking about, and it's it's bigger than what you would think for um, for an outdoor store, you know, and those pines that are harvested, were they pines harvested from outside of Yellowstone? Is that what you said? Yeah, lodgepole pine. Yeah, that's awesome, man. That's something, that's something that we'll uh, have to go see one day for sure. So, yeah. 
So I want to get into I want to get into some of the questions I, I wanted to ask you because I've been I've been waiting all week to ask you these. If you could pick one piece of equipment or tool to carry into the woods, what would that be? I mean, it's it's a little cliche, honestly, but it's true, and it, it, I keep coming back to it. And I and I've I've actually thought about this, and I've had this conversation a lot with people over the years, but. Um, it, it, at the end of the day, it's really hard to be a good cutting tool. And the reason that, you know, and, and you could say knife, but, and it's probably a knife of some kind, but it, but there's a lot of variables there about what cutting tool you might choose, depending upon where you're going. In a boreal forest environment, like, you know, Northern Canada, it, it might actually be an ax instead of a knife. Um, in a jungle environment, it might be a machete instead of a small knife. But for me, in the types of places that I love to go, uh, our local Ozarks, desert environments, mountain, uh, woodland environments, things like that, honestly, a, a, a really sharp, well-made, small uh, knife that I have like complete control over is kind of my go-to tool. But, but ultimately, the reason I would pick any of those tools is because a quality cutting tool in the right environment is one of the best tools you can have because it makes other tools. And that's the whole mindset behind it. It's not so much that I have this knife and, you know, I can just simply cut things with it or, you know, skin an animal or gut a fish or, you know, whatever. But I can use it to craft many, many other types of tools. And that's where the value is. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think it's a cliche question, but I think it's it's one that probably needs to be addressed. And like you said, I mean, there's different applications all over the place. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that's uh, that's a great answer for sure. Is there a certain size knife that you prefer when you're choosing a knife to take? Like if you had to pick one size? Yeah, for me personally, the blade is approximately the width of my hand for my general go-to knife. And the reason for that is because that is often a good indicator for the individual about how good they can control that particular knife. I like a knife that when I'm gripping the handle, my finger will go nearly to the tip, maybe not all the way. But if I can do that and I understand, and I have a, a handle that is ergonomic, but simple that allows me to grasp the knife in many, many different types of grips. It allows me to have complete control over that knife and it will allow me to do more types of chores and uh, craft different types of things with that particular knife. So when you first start out, if you haven't done a lot of wood carving, a big part of that is learning different grips and ways to hold the knife. Um, and ways to get both hands involved and, and basically be able to have a maximum amount of control. Number one, so that you can make difficult types of cuts when needed, depending upon, like if you're building primitive animal traps, let's say, or something like that, you may have particular types of cuts that you're doing if you're trying to build uh, a certain type of trigger for a trap. Um, but the other component of that is safety, because if you have complete control over the knife in the process of using it, then you, the likelihood of you cutting yourself is much, much lower. And so that's why I tend to favor smaller knives that I can grip and control really good. Um, 
but it just depends on what you're doing with it. So again, there's, it's, it's a, it's a complicated subject, but at the same time, it's kind of a fun one. And, and I enjoy uh, teaching people knife skills and that type of thing um, because it, it is a way that people can feel more empowered, you know, going into the woods. It's like most people know you need a knife, but when was the last time you actually carved anything or made any other tools with that knife? Um, and so whether it's like using it for, you know, building fire or crafting traps or building other like camping tools with it, um, those are things that everybody can experiment with, learn a lot from. And the more you do it, the better you get at knife control. Yeah, I can imagine being able to learn that skill prior would be crucial, uh, and especially in the moment. I mean, if you really are trying to survive, you're not just sit back and relax. You probably got high stress. Uh, and I can imagine myself, for instance, like if I was trying to carve a spoon out of wood or like some kind of bowl, if I was doing something of that sort, if I've never done it before and I have not, I can imagine what it turned out to be. So it, it would, it would not be good. Right. Uh, yeah. I mean, and, and you know, it's like anything else, uh, you want to start small and, and work your way up, but learning to do those things and, uh, you know, craft different types of tools, uh, in my opinion, is, is a really useful skill. And it's just a lot. It's interesting and it's fun. Um, and so when you're camping, uh, that's kind of one of my go-to kind of activities. Honestly, it's just like wood carving. I actually really enjoy it. Yeah, not, a, not as many folks carry a knife as they probably used to or probably should. I know um, unless you're probably in construction or the utility business, something like that, I mean, not as many folks carry knives anymore. I remember, I remember we were at my wife's grandma's house and she was cutting some, or she was trying to cut something. And she said, she said, I know we got one man in this house that has a knife on him. And ever since then, I've been like, man, I need to carry a knife with me more. It's just something that very useful. Oh, hundred percent. Like to me, like, uh, I'm not dressed if I don't have a knife. Like it's just, uh, part of the deal. It's not really a, a thought, you know, it's just a, a must have. And, even in my work, I mean, it, working in a, a, a retail environment like that, even just simple things like opening boxes, breaking down boxes, cutting rope and cordage. I mean, I'm reaching for my knife multiple times a day. And to me, having a knife is just kind of being prepared and responsible. It's not even a, yeah, I don't even think about it that way. So when I come across a person that like doesn't carry a knife with them on a regular basis, it almost just feels odd. It's like, why wouldn't you do that? You're, you're already, you're putting yourself at a de deficit right away. Um, and, you know, especially like I, I'm a firm believer that like in women as well, like it's not just a guy thing. It's not like a macho thing. It's just about be a human being prepared. But having said that, I do feel like as a man, like I want to be able to, like go in and, and solve problems and be able to be a resource it, it whether that's for my wife or for a, for a friend or a coworker. and quite frankly a knife is that's a it's a it's like the tool in the toolbox and it's like i don't know how many times somebody's like oh i need like this thing is broken or whatever and i'm like okay well we'll fix it and you just pull your knife out and you figure it out um and you're right like for, I'm around a bunch of guys who like that's kind of their MO as well. 
but I know what you mean because I've been around other people and it's just like, why do you have a knife all the time? I'm like, why don't you have a knife all the time? It just seems weird that you wouldn't. Uh, so most yeah. of the time, are you carrying a, a fixed blade? I would assume that that would be your ideal blade if you're having it in a survival situation. But if you had a, if you had a day where you were you're dressed up, you couldn't have a fixed blade like on your belt loop and you, maybe you, you wanted to put something in your pocket. Do you carry a pocket knife? And if so, oh yeah, I'd love to know what type of knife you prefer. Is there, you just have an array of knives. It depends what you're feeling like that day. Uh, I, I keep it pretty simple. Like I, I do like knives. I own quite a few knives, but, um, and I kind of put them into two basic categories like your edc your everyday carry and i consider an edc for me an urban environment knife that's like going to work going to the store go being around town and it, it basically again it's like when i put my pants on the knife goes in my pocket kind of thing it's like it's part of it the other side of it is my backcountry knife or my i'm i'm going into the woods knife and for that those types of scenarios that's going to be a fixed blade, a full tang knife, a hundred percent. And so I kind of divide them. So I don't carry a fixed blade with me on a day-to-day basis going to work. You know, if I'm just in town, that type of thing. Um, some people do, and that's fine, but I'm a huge fan of bench made pocket knives. Um, yeah. I mean, full disclosure, we're a bench made dealer in my shop. So I sell bench made knives for a living but I have owned many of them and I just continue to be impressed. I mean, I have like beat the dog snot out of a Benchmade knife doing things to a pocket, a folding pocket knife that I would never tell a customer to do. And they just take it and they just keep going, you know? And so for what it's worth, the, bu- the bug out is the knife that I have carried for the last few years. And I love it because it disappears into my pocket if I'm working out or if I want to go run or something, it's got a great little clip on it. I can, I don't even need a pocket. I can just clip it onto the waistband of my shorts or whatever I'm working out in, going to the store, whatever. And you just don't even know it's there because it's so light, but it's an incredibly capable, lightweight little knife that will surprise. I mean, I can start fires with it. I could do simple carving with it. I've cleaned trout with it. I'm pretty sure I could process the whole white-tailed deer with that knife, no problem, if I needed to. Um, and so that, for me, is kind of my day-to-day go-to. I know some people are big fans of multi-tools, carrying like a Leatherman or something like that. I have friends that do that, and, and those definitely have their value. But they're heavy and a little clunky. And so for me, that type of tool lives in my truck. I have one literally in the door handle of my truck on the driver's side. And so if I need that, I know exactly where it is, how to get to it, but I don't want to carry that thing on in my pocket. Cause it's kind of like a big chunk of metal. And I don't like wearing a pouch on my belt uh, for just day to day stuff. And that's why I like the super clean, lightweight EDC knife, like the bug out for my, like keep on my person type knife. And then uh, the multi-tool in the truck. And then if I'm going in the woods, that like smaller, I actually wear neck knives a lot. I like having a, a knife uh, in a sheath hanging around my neck on a lanyard because I have really good access to it. And if I'm wearing a pack, I don't have to worry about the pack belt being in the way of the knife sheath and, and the, everything on my belt. 
Um, and so it's always on me. Uh, and so those, that's kind of the way I tend to roll with the knives. I feel like we could talk about knives all night because they are, they are a great tool and any type of hunting situation. I mean, without one, you're in, you're in trouble. So I think that at the end of the day, like it, it's, it plays a big role and you're right. Having one on you is, uh, is, is countless times that if you don't, I've, I've been in the situations where you, you feel weird about not having it in your pocket. Yeah. It, again, it just goes back to being like a, a prepared human. Uh, and, uh, I'm, I'm obviously a big proponent of just like being, being a resource, like if you're, whether it's for yourself or for your family or for a group of people you're with, like at the end of the day, like I want to be an asset. I want to be a resource and a knife allows me to do that in a way that I can, if I don't have one, quite frankly. That's great. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So how do you keep it sharp? What do you, uh, what's your go-to sharpening method? Uh, that's a great question. And it depends on what the knife is and what I'm doing. Um, but I really like, there's two, two methods that I use most commonly. One of them, there's a, a Swedish brand called Falniven, and they make a really nice simple stone that's a ceramic on one side and a diamond impregnated steel on the other. And I've used those little stones for years. They're great quality. They last a good while. And if you need something just simple and light, fit in your pocket kind of thing, I really like those. The other one, though, that I increasingly feel like I'm using more and more are from WorkSharp. Uh, WorkSharp makes super nice, simple-to-use stones. They have built-in angle guides for the one that I have anyway um, on the sides. And so it kind of takes the guesswork out of getting started as far as what angle to hold the knife. But it but there's a lot of variables there because it depends on what kind of grind your knife has on it. But in general for pocket knives, um, those are set up pretty well, uh, with, I think it's roughly a 20 degree angle on those. And the, the grit on them is super nice. And they make some that have like a strop on the other side. And so, um, the fall knifing, if you want something just super basic and simple, the work sharp, if you want something a little more advanced, um i love both of those and that's what i tend to sharpen most of my smaller blades on um you know i have a uh little setup in my garage part of my workbench and i do have a a belt sander with many many different grits and so for bigger blades um and axes and stuff i go to a belt sander so for someone like me and i'm i'm terrible at, at putting an edge on anything that's why I'm that's why I like the bare razor heads because they're the soft kind of softer metal and it's really easy for me to get them sharp. Would you suggest yep. someone getting into trying to sharpen knives? Would you suggest them going with a, a higher grade steel and learning or going with a softer steel, something that's easier to sharpen? Just take the plunge and, and try to learn on something a little nicer. Uh, I, in my experience, it's easier to learn on a softer steel when you're a new, a new person. And the, and the reason is because you can see more quickly what the results of your effort is, because if you buy a knife, that's like D2 steel or some really hard tool steel, you may spend an hour working on that knife and get a result that you're not happy with. And then you get frustrated because you're like, oh, my gosh, I spent all this time trying to figure this out. And you can get burnt out on it really quickly. Whereas if you start with a softer steel knife, then you can. And a trick that is really nice to use is take like a black Sharpie 
and draw on the grind, draw on the blade of the knife when you start to sharpen it. And then you can look at it after several strokes and you can see where you've removed the marker and where you haven't. And then you can adjust the angle accordingly. And so that's a good tip for people that are first getting started in learning how to sharpen knives or broadheads or whatever um, that will help them kind of quickly figure out where their angle is off, so to speak. Right. Yeah, I've, I've used that technique before. Uh, it's a great technique. Um, unfortunately, I just need to spend more more time behind a, a sharpener, which there are really good sharpeners out there, like the like the work sharp you were talking about. It is a good one. Um, I picked one up. We had one at work, actually, and I put my knife in there and I, I didn't move my knife fast enough. And I just kind of set it in one spot, man, and it tore a it tore a big old chunk out of it. So you still kind of got to know what you're doing with those, but it does make it a lot easier. Yeah, and and again, there, there's a lot of ways to skin that cat, and there's also nothing wrong in the world, you know, with taking your knife to a professional to have it sharpened. I mean, that's one more thing that's so great about Benchmade is you can just send your knife back to them and they'll sharpen it for you. It's that you know you got to pay shipping, but um, so oh, they're a nice. great company. And so you know, um, the other thing about a knife that I always like to mention is like there's an old saying that like you should sharpen a knife once and hone it forever. And the whole point there is that anybody that's using a knife routinely should also be doing routine maintenance with a strop on that knife. And if when you're working with a knife, every, you know, whether or not it's an EDC knife or hunting knife, you should be regularly doing maintenance on that knife. And the more you use it, the more often you should be doing maintenance. And if you're doing small maintenance regularly, that prevents those like really frustrating long sharpening sessions where you're trying to like regrind the angle properly and all that type of stuff. And so it's a really good thing to get in the habit of uh, just like, you know, maintenance on, I mean, I'm trying to think of an example, but any other tool you may have, um, you know, if you have a good quality knife or even if you don't, even if it's a kind of a cheaper knife, um, it's going to work better for you if you're maintaining it properly. Yeah, that's a great piece of advice for sure. Inside 20 is brought to you by Traditional Bow Hunters of Georgia. Head on over to tradbowga.com for more information. And by Big Jim Bow Company, the place for custom bows, handmade leather goods, and much more to meet your traditional archery needs. Check them out at bigjimbowcompany.com. Gunshy Archery perfect custom-made quiver for both two and three blade broadheads check them out at gunshireartery.com vpa broadheads precision machined one-piece broadheads two and three blade mode is available check them out at vparchery.com custom king archery the best price on the best traditional archery products since 1972 check them out at customkingarchery.com Triple T Strings created champion level Flemish and endless strings for hunters and target shooters using the best materials. Check them out at TTT Strings on Facebook. What's your favorite axe or hatchet to, to take into the woods with you if you're if you're going on a couple day camping trip and you want something to split some sure. wood or chop stuff? Yeah, yeah. So I, I work with a company um, called. Holtzbruck, which is a really old Swedish company 
Um, and they make, they've been, they've been making axes longer than about any company in the world. Um, over 300 years, this company has been making axes. It's kind of crazy. Um, but they, they have several really nice axes and Swedish axes in general, very good quality, but they make one called the Akka. Um, that's spelled A-K-K-A. And um, I've used a lot of their axes over the years and a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of great axes on the market. But that particular axe for me just checks a lot of boxes because the handle's long enough that I can swing it with a lot of power if I want to fell a tree or, or buck a down log or something like that. I can get really good grip on it. It's a little bit thinner handle, but it's American hickory handle, so it's still really strong. Um, it has a recessed neck on the head, and so I can also choke up really good on it and do some carving with it and have really good control over the angle if I'm trying to, like, feather out sticks and that type of thing. Um, it has a fairly flat bit on it, um, which just makes it cut really, really nicely. It's not the best splitting axe in the world because it has a fairly narrow head, but at the same time, it's not so narrow that it can't split. So it's sort of an axe that is like light enough that I'll, I'm going to carry it with me when I need to. I'm not, I'm not going to think too much about it, but it's still robust enough and heavy enough that it's going to do most of your basic camp chores. And so you have to think about like, what are you going to be using the axe for? And for a lot of folks, I feel like splitting firewood is one of the main reasons. And so for, if you're going to be doing that, you need just you need a good splitting axe or a maul. But if you're looking for a more general purpose axe, then it's like, well, is this an axe for the truck or is this an axe I want to be able to carry with me into the backcountry? And if, if that's something you want to carry, that's where the axe really shines, in my opinion. Um, if it's something you're just keeping in the truck and you're not planning on really walking too far with it or something like that, um, there's a lot of heavier duty axes out there. Um, you know, that, that would be good options, but I, I just am really fond of that particular one. If you had to pick an ax versus like a handsaw to take with you, either in a survival situation or into the woods, I think I know what you're going to say, but tell us why exactly. Man, that's such a great question. I've had this, I've had this conversation so many times. Um, and yeah, it, I love axes, but there, but I would, typically choose the saw and there's a lot of reasons why i would do that one of them first and foremost is simply weight and ease of carry um but it also has to there's a big component of it that has to do with safety saws are just so much safer to use in general especially if you're tired and you're in a survival situation and those types of things, it's so easy to, one miscalculation with an ax can end in a severe injury. And so are you going to be, you know, in enough clarity of mind that you can make good judgment when you're tired using an ax? Maybe, maybe not, you know, but with a saw, you might nick your finger or something, but the likelihood of, taking a bad stroke in an inopportune moment and missing and driving the bit into your leg or something. I mean, that, that is a really dangerous situation. Um, 
but if you're going to carry a saw, it ought to be a good one. Um, and so, you know, I wouldn't go with just any saw. I've had a lot of them over the years and I've broken a lot of them. And so, you know, making sure that you've got one that's good quality that you can depend on um, and that you, you know, you know, is just going to hold up. And also knowing the limitations. I mean, they're, they're entirely different types of tools. You know, saws are meant to cut completely perpendicular to the grain of the wood and axes nearly the opposite they're meant more to cut with the grain or at least at an angle to the grain and and so again it sort of depends on what the goal is here but if it's if i can only choose one and i have an unknown situation that i'm going into i'm probably still going to take the saw yeah i have a saw in my hunting pack and i tell you what that is um that is uh top two most useful things i have in my in my pack just because when I'm climbing a tree, I don't do it on public land because I don't hunt public land that much. But when I'm climbing a tree and, you know, private land, I want to cut a few branches out of the way, man. I've, I've been without it and I know how useful it is just to have it. And I mean, you couldn't do that with an axe. I mean, carry around an axe and their saws can be so compact, too. It's 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 almost two different, you know, ball fields right there, an axe and a, and a saw. But. That is um, a good point for sure. Yeah, and, and they complement each other really well. That's the other thing. It's like, yeah, I think on just a day-to-day -day basis, a lot of folks are going to find, you know, easier carry and more use out of a saw. But just like any tool, it has its limitations. And so, you know, for me, either whether it's in the truck or, you know, camping trip or at the cabin or whatever, um, I really love having a saw that I can cut wood perpendicular to the grain and get it down to size. And then I have an ax that I can craft that wood or split that wood or, you know, do additional things that where working with the grain makes more sense. And so they're very complementary to one another. So what, um, what saw are you, are you carrying around in your bag? If you had to pick have, a, comp a compact saw, something like, that folds up what would you uh what would you pick there, there are two that i really love and for a compact saws and one of them is uh another swedish company um called baco and it's the baco laplander um i love that little saw it it has one of the reasons i like it so much is because it has a mid-sized uh tooth and so the the teeth on some saws are really big and they sell at cutting green wood because a lot of saws are meant to be pruning saws and the intention with pruning saws most of the time is cutting green wood and large teeth excel at that but small teeth are better for harder materials so for really hard dead wood like you're processing for campfires or things like antler and bone uh, that little Baco Laplander saw cuts really really nicely and so that's the one I tend to carry probably more often than not. Uh, the other one, though, are the saws made by Silky, which are Japanese saws, and they are really, really nice, very sharp, and I love those saws as well. Um, and I keep, I have a couple, actually, I think I have three sizes of them. And so, depending upon what I'm doing, uh, for bushcraft purposes, I might use a smaller one, but I have a bigger one that I keep in my truck, and they make them actually, like, kind of like really big ones that, that are like folding crosscut saws that you can like really process some big wood with if you need to. Um, 
but those are my two favorite companies by far, uh, Silky and Baco. If you can't realize, we're just making our Christmas list right now. That's why we keep asking yeah. these questions. So, no, but I do. I really have a a Baco saw, and it is it is a great saw. I love it. It does a great job. It seems effortless when you're cutting through a uh, like a big limb or a big piece of wood, and how many strokes you you have to take to be able to get through it all the way. I'm I'm with you on that, and it's lightweight too. On top of that, yeah. Yeah, they're they're fantastic. I've cut through antler, bone, all kinds of stuff with those things, and uh, I'm just continuously impressed. And, and I'm all, you know, the blades hold up and they last quite a while too. So, just a, a, a quick question on that: why why are so many of these saws and axe companies, um, what'd you say, Swedish? Yeah. Um, what, what's up? What's up with that? I've never really put any thought to, into that. So. I've, I've spent some time, in, I was in Sweden almost a year ago, and I, I had an opportunity to go over there and meet with that company, Holtzbruck, that produced that axe that I was talking about. Um, and I, I, I was able to do some hiking and, and, and meet some great folks while we were over there. And, and first of all, Sweden is a beautiful country. It's an easy country to travel in. Almost everybody there is speaks at least two or three languages and their second language is English and they're very kind people. They like Americans. And I, I had a great time over there, but they have a very steep heritage in woodcraft, in wood carving, in uh, what they call sloiding, which is basically like carving for uh, it's just kind of uh, it's a unique word it's hard to translate but it's basically just like woodcrafting or carving um and they have a deep appreciation for nature but they also have a very deep history in forestry and it obviously you know it's an old country and that goes all the way back to shipbuilding way way back you know 16 1700s and, and further and so the country is so heavily forested, they have a resource that they learned how to master early on, hundreds of years ago. And I think that's why they have this deep heritage in producing high quality woodcrafting tools, knives, axes, saws, um, is just simply because of the environment, their appreciation of that environment and then the process of learning how to use it from everything to shipbuilding to, uh, you know, who knows, I mean, all just all kinds of stuff, farming implements and, and that sort of thing. But it, it, it's a really cool country. And, uh, man, I, I love the Swedish people. They're just great. That sounds like an amazing experience. And, too, to hear just where that comes from, uh, I guess, in the sense of, like, if you wanted to buy a high-quality axe, it makes sense. And I, I've heard the same thing um, and just from other from other folks that highly recommend that company um, from an axe selection standpoint. Talk about the material that you prefer when it comes to building your arrow shafts. Um, and then what about if you've, you've built bows in the past – what material do you prefer to, prefer to work with from a bow building standpoint? Sure. So the, the bow one is kind of a shorter discussion because I don't build bows as much. And so I'll start with that. And to me, the wood that you use predominantly is decided upon the type of bow you want to build. Um, and for me, 
the, the my experience has been building long bows, specifically flat bows. And so if you want to build a, a long bow, flat bow style, I think a lot of folks would would agree. Uh, there's always going to be somebody that disagrees, but it's going to be hard to beat Osage Orange or Bodark or Horse Apple or whatever you want to call it. It's all the same tree. But the characteristics of that wood yield itself to being optimal for producing longbows. It just makes beautiful longbows. There are other types of woods that make great bows but those woods take more work and you have to do more things to them to get an equally good bow out of it that you can with osage and so my my favorite bows that i have built and the favorite bows that i own by other people that are much better bow builders than me are all made of osage there are other great woods though like you is another one that comes up a lot you excels though at building english style long bows like a, a bend through the handle type bow um, its characteristics are just going to yield a little bit better bow for that style. Um, I've built quite a few bows over the years, but at the same time, th that has had to take a backseat in the last couple of years because of just time, quite frankly. I, I enjoy building them, and I, I hope to get built back to building them one day. But I spend way more time building arrows, and I spend way more time building quivers because those are the two products that I've kind of become known for i guess so to speak um and through so through my shop i build custom arrows and sell them there and predominantly if i'm just if i want to build the best wood air best performing wood arrow that i can build um i buy my shafting from sherwood shafts uh carson um is a great guy and those those guys produce just amazing wood shafting in my opinion they're laser straight they're super good quality there it's all douglas fir that they're producing um and so for my own high-end hunting arrows and for the high-end custom arrows i build and sell that's what i use but if i want to go primitive and i want to harvest something directly from the landscape to create a, a full primitive kind of archery setup locally in arkansas the resource I always go to is river cane. Um, we have pretty abundant uh, groves of river cane on many of our river systems in the Ozarks. And it's an incredibly durable material. It's fairly easy to straighten over heat on a campfire or even a propane torch or something like that. Um, and it yields really, really nice arrows. Um, they're just a very time consuming to build. And so they're not, they're, they're a cost prohibitive to be quite frankly for me to build because there's so many, so much time that goes into building an arrow. Um, and so I tried selling them for a while, but it, I, I just can't because it's like, nobody wants to spend $300 on six arrows, you know? Uh, and I, and I don't. But and that, but that's what I'd have to sell them for, quite frankly, because of the amount of time that goes into it. Um, and so th those are the materials that I predominantly work with. Sherwood is a, a great provider. I have I have shot I don't know how many wood arrows that he has, uh, the shafts that he's produced and built arrows off of those. He, he's a great guy. He is a great uh, business owner. He does a really good job, like you said, and just being consistent. I think from what I understand when it comes to producing 
uh, a piece of wood uh, that is turned into an arrow, like the consistency behind that is what's critical. Um, and he has the equipment that obviously is outdated at this point to be able to do that. Uh, and then just the back history and knowledge behind that. So I'm right there with you. It's that's interesting. You said that. Andy's willing to help you. I mean, I remember right. the very first time I got, I got arrows for him. I was new into traditional archery and I, I called him up and I was like, man, I don't really know what I need, but I need some, some arrows. And man, he talked to me for probably 20 minutes figuring out what I needed. And it was, it was, it was nice. He is a good fella, good guy to do business with for sure. So back to the bows, do you have, um, do you have Osage readily available in your area? Cause I know we don't, I mean, we've got hickory around here and I've actually got some hickory staves drying for, for Matt to make me a bow here soon, but, um, hey, good luck with that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we do. Um, we are pretty blessed in Arkansas. In fact, the part I live next to a park and there's a ton of Osage orange in it. Now it's in a park. I can't go cut it down, but it's just an example of, you know, uh, the resource. And I actually just harvested an Osage, uh, this past spring myself and I, I split out and put up in my garage to dry. Um, I don't know when I'm going to have time to get to them, but I will one day. Um, but we do uh, have a, a pretty healthy uh, growth. I mean, the thing about Osage is most people hate it, you know, because it, it's dropping hedge apples everywhere. Um, it kind of makes a mess. It's a pretty gnarly tree. It's got thorns on it. Um, and most people just hate them and want to cut them down, um, unless you're an archer or a bowyer. And then you'd love them, you know. And so uh, – it's kind of funny. There's this kind of a juxtaposition with that tree, but uh, the, the the wood, the grain and the wood itself is just beautiful. When you cut into a fresh one and it's like bright yellow and then you carve a bow out of it. And then over the years, it starts to turn brown. And then when they get old enough, they turn almost like a, a purpley chocolate, almost kind of color. I mean, it's just kind of a fascinating wood. And it's like it was put here to be a bow you know, which I think is pretty awesome. That is awesome, man. I know where in where we live in Georgia, in our town, I know where there's three Osage trees, but they're they're all on private property. I'm just I keep a close eye on them. I'm just waiting for yeah. to see a tree yeah. crew out there one day. I'm going to stop them. But uh, but yeah, we yeah. Uh, we're not blessed like that, unfortunately, but that's all right. We've got yeah. other things. So. Yeah, we, and we have a ton of hickory here, too. I've actually made way more hickory bows than I have Osage, just because, hic I mean, hickory is one of our predominant trees. I mean, in our hardwood forest here, uh, we're, we're, we're very fortunate in Arkansas. Uh, we have a wide variety of different types of hardwoods and uh, a wide variety of uh, different species of hickory as well. And so, um, mockernut hickory, pignut hickory, I, I've made a bunch of those uh, bows out of both of those uh, species and they're great woods to learn on they're very durable um but to get a real good hickory bow um it, it in my opinion it needs to be fire hardened and that's the fire hardening process is uh there's a little bit of a, a in my opinion at least from my own exam my own experience uh it's a little bit of a steep learning curve to get that right um but if you fire harden them well they make really great bows um, but it's easy to mess it up if you're not careful. Yes, yeah, it, it, it 
it is a process to make a bow and we've talked about that before we've tried to do it and we've made a couple uh, i got a hinge in mind but it's something that is addicting and i know that tom willing will be back to do that as well uh we we haven't talked a lot about in on these podcasts around just different dishes or ways to prepare wild game i think it's really important i think that uh there's a number of people that they hunt because they they love the taste of wild game uh, or maybe they might give that to uh, a family member or a friend and so we we want to try to touch on that uh, with you and know that you like to prepare deer ribs and that is something that is not often done by many people i have had the opportunity to uh to prepare them and eat them myself and i like them they're really good and i think they're lean and i think they're healthy for you and they're good i like that aspect of it but we'd like to know like, what is your recipe or favorite recipe when it comes to preparing deer ribs i mean we're we're not but 21 days i think away uh from our season opener here in georgia so for deer and it's right around the corner we'd like to know yeah absolutely it's a great question um and so I basically have one way that I, you know, routinely cook deer ribs at the house. Um, I've eaten a, a variety of wild game ribs, like at a campsite, just like throwing them on the fire, quite honestly, and stuff like that. And so I'm, I'm not talking about like backcountry style ribs. Um, I'm talking about if I process the animal and I bring everything home to me, the thing that really makes the difference is the pressure cooker. And so my wife and I have an Instapot and I, that's one of my, that's my favorite kitchen appliance to be, if I have a stove with an oven and an Instapot, like I'm business and the rest of the time I want to do my cooking outside on, on fire. Um, but if I could only have one kitchen appliance besides just a basic stove, it would be that. And so I'm going to take the ribs I'm going to put them in that Instapot and I'm going to pressure cook them for probably around 15 to 20 minutes and get them basically totally cooked, but it's really going to help to tenderize that meat a fair amount. And then I'm a big fan of basting. And then, so from there, what I'll do is when I put them or before I actually put them in the Instapot, I'm going to go start to grill because we have a, a regular charcoal grill. We don't use gas. And so I'll go get the grill started and then I'll come back in, prep the ribs, put them in the instant pot. I'll usually put like a little bit of barbecue sauce or or whatever seasoning I want to. And I kind of mix the seasoning up. I don't have any special tips or anything for seasoning. I just say, do what you like there. I'll put them, I'll cook them in the instant pot when they're done. I'll pull them out. I go out and then I'll just pick whatever barbecue sauce I like. I'll put them on the fire over the coals. And I just sit there and baste them and flip them. And about every 30 seconds, maybe between 30 seconds to 60 seconds, I'm just putting a coat of barbecue sauce or whatever sauce I got and flipping them. And I'll just do that until they've just got like a really nice kind of crust of uh, that kind of barbecue sauce basted on there. And then I pull them off and eat them. You know, I mean, that's kind of, it's nothing fancy, but that's how I go about it. And, like you said, they're pretty lean and they're not, they don't hold, you know, a lot of meat like cow ribs do. So I really like doing them kind of as like a, uh, like a starter, almost like an appetizer. If I got friends coming over or something like that, a lot of times if you invite people over your house, they never even had deer ribs before. And so, uh, it's kind of a fun thing to do and let people try them and, 
you know, everybody gets a couple of deer ribs, but you can definitely make a meal out of a rack too. Um, but it is a, a resource on a whitetail that I think a lot of times just gets left for the coyotes that a lot of folks might actually enjoy if they tried it. And I'm getting hungry just hearing you talk about that. I don't know about you, Tim, but I'm with you 100% on two aspects that they often get wasted. And I think that more people should try it and keep it. And I like the idea of it being a starter. But then to the Instapot, I'm big advocate. You talk about a time saver too, that I love it. I absolutely love it. You can set it and forget it and then come back and it does a great job and it cooks stuff quick and it makes it tender. It's it really is. It's it's a great thing to have in the kitchen. I, I agree with you on that 100%. That's really interesting. Talk about your recent successful self-bow harvest. I say recent. I cheated a little bit. Went through and looked at your Instagram. And if anybody's listening to this and has an Instagram, they need to check out Pack Rat Bushcraft and follow you. You've got a lot of great stuff you post, a lot of good content. And so talk about that hunt that you were successful shooting that bull elk and there might have been one before that i might this might have been one that i've seen it was a while ago so i think the one you're talking about is was in 2020 and so that was my second elk hunt but my first western like big elk hunt um and it had been a dream of mine to do something like that for a lot of years and i predominantly i mean almost almost all of my hunting has been in arkansas i've i've fished and hiked and climbed and done all kinds of stuff in the west but i i'd never really had an opportunity to hunt for various reasons and so i just kind of made my mind up that i was going to go do this and i spent a ton of time preparing and uh i went with two buddies one is a guy that i work with who's a good friend of mine at my shop and the other one is this guy Corey hawk and he's a good friend of mine. He's a professional boyer. A lot of people may know him or be familiar with him because he was on uh, Alone a few years ago, the TV show. Oh, yeah. Um, but he's a professional bow maker, and he only makes primitive longbows, predominantly out of Osage and Hackberry. And now he does bow building classes. And so if you're interested on in learning how to build a bow and you want to go take a class from a professional, you should check out Corey Hawk. Go to his Instagram. Uh, his bows or his company is called Organic Archer. Um, and Corey is a master at what he does. He's really, really good. Uh, and and he's a great guy. And so he's a great friend of mine. And uh, so the three of us go. And Corey and I are both carrying bows that he made, um, arrows that, that we made. And um, my buddy Robert, who came along, is just kind of there for the experience. He's not hunting, but he's a he's an avid backpacker and and has a lot of backcountry experience. And so um, we get a tag, and I'd only been to Idaho twice before for climbing and fishing, but never hunting. And so I I do a bunch of scouting, on, you know, just looking at at, at maps basically. Um, and but I spent just a ton of time and and using resources like on the the Idaho Game and Fish website has a hunt planner that you can use on there. And I found that tool fairly useful. And so a combination of study and maps and that, we went out and and we had, I was prepared. I think we had like maybe nine days or something to hunt. And it's a long, I mean, I could take two hours to tell the story, but um, the this, this sort of quick version, so to speak, is 
we we drive all the way out there. I mean, from Arkansas, you just like twenty, basically twenty four hours to get there. It's a long way. Um, and we hike in one evening, and I had scoped out this valley that that kind of had the characteristics I was looking for. It had good cover. It had a nice creek going through it. It had north aspect uh, facing slopes providing um, just all the the types of habitat that I knew that elk were going to be looking for. We got up in there um, on the second day. It was several miles back in there and a couple thousand feet above the truck. So it was steep and a a lot of down timber and stuff. But I wanted a place that other people didn't want to hike into. You know, I was looking for a place that didn't have an easy access trail. And there was just sign everywhere, man. I mean, it was like a, uh, you know, we, it was kind of a, re, a recon mission. We just went up there to see what we could see, just thinking we were scouting. And once we got up into the back of that basin, I was like, we're not going anywhere. Like, this is the spot. And um, so we hunted an evening and didn't see anything. And the next morning, uh, I was awoke right at daylight or just before daylight by an elk way up above us like bugling as loud as he could i mean it was like uh, as my i mean i'd heard of elk bugle before but never in the backcountry when i'm hunting with a stick bow i mean it was like the hair stands up on the back of your neck kind of thing mm. and uh so we we did our best we tried to put a stock on that bull for about an hour and i we got within 30 yards of him but he winded us um and that was just exhilarating i mean just really steep terrain but it was just we were so excited at that point to just have that opportunity we moved up onto a high ridge and and did some some glassing and and saw a cow um, with a calf and tried to make a move down just to see you know if we could get close to that cow and if there were any other ones and got busted doing that but that was the second day of the hunt and we just, we had a lot of action and it was a ton of fun. But when I was glassing on that ridge, I kept looking back across that valley and looking at where that elk that was bugling that morning had come down. And there was a trail that looked like an elk highway coming down this pass way above tree line though. It looked more like mountain sheep terrain than elk terrain. But I was like, man, if that elk came through there one time, they, you know, I can't help but think they got to be using it more, you know, it's not just a coincidence. And so, you know, at this point, I still barely know what I'm doing. Um, and I, uh, when it comes to elk hunting anyway, um, but, but I, you know, I had read everything I could up to that point and I just had to go with my gut. So I, I, uh, got up way before daylight and hiked up where, the narrowest part of that trail was at the very top of the tree line where I could create a little blind and some stunted fir trees up there. So I moved some rocks around, make myself a little spot and I get all set up and I wait. And the time kind of comes and goes where the elk had come down the day before. And I start thinking, Oh, well that was, you know, wishful thinking that another elk was going to come down this morning, same spot, but you know what? this it's awesome i'm here it's beautiful i kind of get to watch the sunrise in that spot and and i was happy well not much time went by and a whole herd of elk come down that trail and i i wrote an article that's in traditional bow hunter magazine 
uh, about this hunt. If anyone has that magazine, they can look back a few issues and, and find that article. Um, it, the, name of the, the name of that article, I think, is uh, Second Shots for a First Elk. It was the first elk that I took. But really? And the reason the article has that title is because I, the, the best, I, at that point, I just wanted an elk. I, was, I had an any elk tag, and I was ready to shoot a cow if that's what gave me an opportunity. Um, but the, 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 the only elk I had a shot on was the last one in the back of the herd as I walked by and it was the best bull. Well, I took my shot and I, I shot right underneath him. Like my windage was perfect, but I shot low and I just got anxious. I think I misjudged the distance and I didn't get full back tension on the shot. I know I didn't. And I was, so the elk take off running. I was super frustrated with myself, but at the same time, I was like exhilarated. I was like, man, we've only been here a few days and I've already had all these opportunities. And, you know, just having like a wave of, of different types of emotions. Well, I hadn't even like gathered my thoughts and I hear something and I look up above me and there's a second herd of elk coming down the mountain. Oh and goodness. I'm like, got to be kidding me like i was freaking out at that point and long story short the same thing happened these elk come down they kind of stop um yeah, fortunately for me i kind of set up everything perfectly the wind was great i mean the one of the elk at one point was five yards from me you know uh the, the lead cow that was coming down and, and i was just praying that, that she didn't bust me well she decided it was okay to go same scenario the best bull in the herd was the one in the back and the last thing i remember was he got right in front of me and stopped and i drew back and i just remember saying to myself back tension in my head just to make sure i got the full draw and it, when i drew he turned he, he he saw my movement out of his peripheral and we like locked eyes for a split second and then i was like nope find your spot and i you know fortunately kind of had enough wherewithal to like go back to my spot get my back tension good um and ended up being able to i made a great shot on him and he was he he probably ran oh 150 yards and i think he was down in uh less than 60 seconds you know Golly. Like what a, man that's uh, an awesome hunt amazing day that I, I don't know if i'll be fortunate in my life enough to have another day like that but i, I sure hope maybe one day i can because it, it was remarkable so uh, remember that forever for the rest of your life uh, and what a story yeah for sure yeah. that's almost I've textbook often, right there yeah it was pretty incredible i've often said next to my kids being born and, and getting married is one of the best days of my <laughs> life no question oh that's awesome uh, that's funny that's but, that's what a hunt that's awesome man that is a great story i'm gonna read that article i have not read it yet but i will be going back to to try to find that article and read it great that's great story so you got to tell us about your cherokee two arrow fletch finishing that you do on some of your built arrows uh, I, I saw some pictures of it talk about just how you do that exactly you don't glue them on you don't use tape it doesn't look like uh, and then what benefits have you seen behind utilizing that versus like a traditional three uh, feather fletch or even I've seen now a lot of four feather fletch guys utilizing that, that those that number of fletchings. Sure. So that's a great question. And I will preface it by saying like I predominantly fletch 
do three Fletcher arrows, sort of Comanche style, and I use a jig. Like day in and day out, when I'm building most of my arrows, that's when I'm doing three Fletch. Um, several years ago, though, and 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 still by request, if if somebody either for my own interest or if I have a customer or a friend that's interested in primitive gear. I kind of reserve the Cherokee style fletch for my river cane shafts when I'm building kind of a, uh, it's not like I'm trying to build something that's like totally accurate to the period, so to speak, but that is kind of harkens back to an older time. And I'm trying to use as primitive of materials as I can when I do that. So I'm using things like real white silk sinew and pine pitch um and, and you know staying away from modern materials as much as i can when i build those type of arrows and so the they have a unique cut and the primary advantage of them is that you can process a fletching with minimal effort minimal tools and you don't have to have a jig in order to install the fletchings correctly on the shaft now Having said that, I've shot a lot of them, and they're squirrely. If you get a good one on a good straight shaft, then it can fly really, really well. It can be a great arrow, no question an arrow that I would hunt with. But the issue with your shafting and the feathers themselves when you're processing these by hand is they're not perfectly round for the shafting, and the feathers are not cut perfectly flat on the bottom typically and so you end up with irregularities in the the helical uh and, and it's not really even helical in the traditional sense because they you're not putting them on with a jig you're not putting twist in the feather it's the natural shape of the feather and it's hard to explain until you see it but i i've shot enough enough of them to know that it's super interesting it's fun to do and it is really cool to shoot them but i'll if i build six of them usually about two out of six end up flying well enough that i'm happy with them the other ones i get some pretty weird like fish tailing uh kind of going on to the extent that i'm i wouldn't feel comfortable hunting with them i'll put it that way um and so I think those types of arrows are beautiful. They're interesting. They're fun to make. And they absolutely can be hunted with. I mean, we, you know, there, there's obviously a history of Native Americans using that style and harvesting animals with those. So there's no question they work. But the they're just challenging in their own right. And so it's not something I would necessarily like, unless you are up for the challenge of, of like really spending a lot of time and digging into that, I wouldn't necessarily recommend like doing that per se, but it, it is, it is pretty cool. I have to admit at the same time. So. Yeah. I imagine like back then when they're building arrows and if you're sitting there building a bunch of them, you could do that. Plus you're using less feathers. If you're using and turkey feathers or whatever they might have used back then to build them uh, and, and eventually i mean you're making them you're probably gonna you're, they're gonna shoot them their shots are probably a lot closer so maybe they're not as they're, they're not fish telling as bad as they would like some something like that we would do today as far as distance goes 
but I could see where it would be a lot easier to do that to set them up than it would to do three and try to you know space them out evenly without modern equipment like a jig. Yeah, I've I've examined. I've been. I love visiting museums when I have the opportunity, and I've done a lot of you know online research and things like that. And I've examined a lot of different Native American arrows, um, and of course they vary just as much as modern arrows do. And so, you know, one thing though, with those particular types of arrows that are fletched that way is in general, they're shorter and thinner and lighter than most of the modern arrows that we would be accustomed to hunting with. Um, And I think a lot of the, the, the early peoples that would have been, hunting with those types of tools like you already mentioned would have more than likely been hunting at close distances they would have been using short draw bows um and it was just kind of a a very different style of archery quite frankly than most of us are doing these days um but at the same time it's just i think it's an it's it's an example of how skilled those people were to be able to do that and survive um it, it's it's quite remarkable but clearly you know m- many of them pulled it off and uh it's pretty cool to think about it is it's fascinating it, and that's really to me like the bow and arrow that that error of it is what is so intriguing to me i've always thought history was intriguing and where things came from and just the back history behind it and the simplicity i guess that's another thing that draws me to it i know i've talked about that before you need to tell us about this back quiver that you build and selfishly bringing this up because I have asked you to, to make me one. Uh, once you get caught up, I know that this is obviously a, a popular thing that people pursue you for and you do a great job and the way they're set up is what drew me to it and how you have these, all these different features. Talk about that high level, about the quiver, about what features it has, uh, maybe what inspired you to build that or how long you've been doing that, and you make them by hand too. So talk about that for us. Uh, well, thank you for asking. The Quiver is like a passion project for me. Uh, at this point, it's many years in development. Um, we could have had a whole podcast just about the Quiver. <laughs> <laughs> I figured uh, it's a long, yeah, it's a long story in and of itself, but the, the, the short version or the shortest I can kind of make it, uh, and I apologize, there's a thunderstorm outside right now, so if there's some it's thunder okay. going on in the It's doing uh, it here, too. Yeah. Um, so, I, like, I, like I, I've had conversations with a lot of traditional bow hunters, and the quiver is something that just seems to be an ever-evolving uh component of most archers experience like they try all different types of quivers on the bow on the hip on the back certain quivers work good for certain situations but not others and i found myself in that exact position like i was i had a bunch of different types of quivers and I was just never that happy with any of them. And I've never been the type of guy that likes arrows on my bow. I like a clean bow. Um, and, and for one, it just feels better to me that way. And, and two, I, I guess just hiking with the bow in my hand um, 
whether I set the bow down or whatever, I just don't like them on there. It's just a personal preference. But so after trying a bunch of different quivers and I've been shooting a a bow, a traditional bow avidly since I was in my early twenties and I'm 44 now. So, uh, you know, a, a number of years and probably in, in, Oh, I guess it was 20, maybe 2018 early early 2017 or, or 2018 sometime in there um i got this idea that you know uh, for a back quiver that just kind of works differently because all the back quivers i've ever had didn't have good adjustments and if you wore them the arrows rattled around and didn't stay put and when i reached back they weren't where i wanted them to be because the quiver had moved around or slid down my back or something like that but i always just liked the idea of having the arrows on my back um because i felt like it 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 functions well for me and i also just aesthetically like it i've always been into packs like i'm a kind of a pack nerd part of that's just because my job um so i decided to start developing this and the first one that i did i pieced together from products that already existed and so i was using like military shotgun scabbards and pouches from Maxpedition and and like military grade molly straps and all this stuff and i just sort of put this thing together and i actually used it for a little while this sort of like hodgepodge prototype and i was like okay i think i kind of like this like it's not it has it needs a lot of work but there's potential here and this fella came in the store sometime later um and this guy named Cody, and he owns a company named Sojourn Gear. And but what he does is he builds military grade accessories, and so he's building like all of this like um, basically tactical equipment. But he's really good at it. But he came in the store, and we were having a conversation, and he told me that he he sewed for a living, and he and he said well, we we should work together sometime. And I was like, yeah, I got this quiver. And, and we kind of, I worked with him over months and we developed it and we came up with a, a product and actually sold, oh, I don't know, somewhere between 50 and a hundred of them probably. But he got so busy with his business. Eventually he came to me and he was like, man, I'm sorry, but I can't do these for you anymore. I can't, I don't have time to do my own stuff. And so I was back to, you know, not, and, and so when I actually went on that elk hunt that I just told you guys about, I was wearing a quiver he made. It was one of my design, but his he built it. And it was one of the early ones. And uh, so this then, of course, COVID comes along and all the things with that. And I'm trying to find a company that will build this thing for me. And I'm emailing people and calling people. And I tell them what I'm doing, and, and no one's talking. They're, they're not interested. You know, it's just a terrible timing. And. And, you know, it's just too too far outside of the norm that they want to deal with me. And so sometime, oh, golly, how long has it been now? I guess it would have been in early 2021. I, uh, I just kind of have a little conversation with myself where I, I, at this point I'm obsessed with this thing. And I'm like, I either need to let this go or I need to do it. And I, I rolled that around for a while and I was like, I don't, but I don't really have time and all this stuff. I've never sewed anything. I've sewn a button on in my life. That was the only thing in, 
<laughs> honestly, I, probably, I had no idea I had a sewing machine. And so uh, I talked with a bunch of people and, and ultimately decided that, you know what, I, I can't, I can't stop thinking about it, quite frankly, was the reason I decided to do it is because I couldn't put it down. I want this thing to exist and there's no way for me to ha- make it happen unless I did it. And so n- having no idea what I was doing, I bought an industrial sewing machine and a whole bunch of sewing you know, materials and stuff. And I spent about six months teaching myself how to sew, making terrible stuff, just really bad stuff. Um, but through, you know, that trial, through that experience over time, um, slowly but surely, I started, you know, one component at a time and, and over the months and, but you know, probably six solid months of, you know, staying up till one o'clock and two o'clock in the morning sometimes. Um, eventually, I was like, okay, I, I think I have something here and I'd be willing to put my name on this. Um and so it started off super slow. I was putting them in my shop and it was just kind of word of mouth. Um, and then kind of slowly but surely, you know, putting them on Instagram, getting the word out about them. And at this point, I've, I've sort of created a little bit of a monster. Like, uh, it, it's it's awesome. And I'm so grateful to everyone that's bought a quiver. And, and the fact that anyone cares at all about what I'm doing and, and, and thinks that it could be a good solution for them. I mean, I, I really am grateful, but it's a very time consuming endeavor. Each quiver has many hours that go into it. It's, it's me for the first year. It was just me. Now there's an old friend of mine, a woman that I went to college with, um, who, uh, is kind of a stay at home mom. She's a real nice person and, and she's an excellent sewer. And so in her spare time, she actually got an industrial machine as well. She helps with some of the components sometimes, like the, the top pouch or the water bottle pocket. Um, but the, the quiver itself and the strap, shoulder straps and stuff, I, I'm still always building all that myself at this point. And so long story short, um, the way it works is I just have a wait list. Um I try real hard to get about eight quivers done every six weeks. It doesn't always work out that way because I've got a, you know, like I said, I've got a whole other career. I work about 45 hours a week um, on my other job, uh, my normal day-to-day job. And then of course I'm, I'm trying to be a good, uh, at least a reasonably good uh, father and husband. Um, and then I got to find time to, you know, do the events that we do in my shop and then also build these quivers. Um, and a little bit of time for myself in there, hopefully, you know, shoot my boat, go fishing, whatever. Um, and so that's the reason it takes so long is because it's just a, it's a custom product. It's hand built from scratch. Um, and it's a labor of love, so to speak. And, uh, you know, I, I love the product, but quite frankly, what, what the, what is the future of it going to be? I don't really know at this point. Um, right now I'm still in that stage where I, I enjoy sewing. I'm loving doing it as much as I can. I'm really, it makes me real excited when someone gets one and then they go use it or they're, whether they're just target shooting or hunting or whatever. The fact that somebody wants to own something that you made yourself with your own hands, it just feels really good. But I also recognize that like this probably isn't sustainable for me forever. 
Um, and so that's kind of where I'm at right now is trying to figure out like what the, um, future for this company is going to be. Uh, and so, uh, if we, if anyone ever listens or knows anybody that, you know, has an, uh, uh, a sewing company that might be interested in taking it on, tell them to contact me. Cause the other thing about it is, is as far as I'm concerned, this is an American made product. I don't have any interest in shipping this thing to China or somewhere like that. Um, it's going to be made in the States or not made at all if I have anything to do with it. Um, and so, uh, that's kind of where I'm at. Uh, if I can, I can talk more about it, but at the same time, uh, you know, not everybody gets as excited about it as I do. So, no, uh, I think it's, I think it's sweet, man. The first time I saw it, I first thought to myself, I was like, this would be absolutely perfect for shooting 3d because when I go and shoot 3d, I'm like you, I, there, so I do different, I, I guess. When I, I'm on foot and uh, still hunting, I like to have a quiver on the side of my bow. I've learned that. Just kind of keeping it compact. And I know that's just different outlook for different people. But keeping it all together and right there, and there's not something on my back getting caught up on brush or limbs and logs and stuff like that. I'm trying to crawl around. But then uh, when I'm when I'm hunting uh, like deer traditionally, like if I sit on the ground or I'm in a tree, I like to have a hanging quiver is what I found. And I like to have a light lighter bow and not have a quiver on the side of it. And I think this would be perfect for that aspect as well. Not just 3D hunting. I mean, 3D shooting where you're walking around and you need a water bottle and you need other things you want to carry with you, but you don't want to carry a backpack and all kind of junk along with your bow. You got this and then you got the hunting aspect behind that as well that I think I'll utilize it for. Talk about the how it's set up, what all you found that you can you can put on it, what's on it now, what will it hold just so people that hear this can kind of understand that. And then they can obviously go check it out on your Instagram page. Yeah. So, I mean, it honestly is, it's pretty well designed ground up to be a mountain hunting quiver. Um, I mean, so the design of it is such that my intention is that you can attach it to the side of a larger backpacking pack. Most big packs for backcountry use have side compression straps, usually two on each side. And the quiver is designed in such a way that it'll hang perfectly on those two straps. So when I'm hiking into the backcountry, you know, let's just call it an over like a multi-day elk hunt, you know, that type of thing. Um, everything I need to actually hunt is in the quiver and it straps directly onto the side of my pack. If I want to go scout an area or whatever, I can drop my pack, mark the location. Un, just unclip the quiver throw it on my back grab my bow i'm ready to go and i can move light and fast so that's the original kind of idea uh behind how i wanted it to function in addition to the points that you already pointed out about the whole 3d thing it's all awesome. i mean it's the the other thing it's perfectly designed for because i love doing it it's just stump shooting there's almost no other than hunting if my favorite thing to do is to just go in the woods go on a hike and just pick out targets in the landscape and shoot at them. I could do that forever. It's yeah. just super fun. And so it's perfectly designed for that type of use. Um, but to go back to the kind of hunting scenario, um, it, for me, one of the big things about quivers is that they were never, the strap system on them never fit very well. And it did not allow for the enough retention in the quiver that it would stay in one spot on your body 
And so what I spent a lot of time figuring out was a way to have a, a simple harness system that would fit a wide variety of body types that would allow the quiver to be snug enough to your back that when you reach back for your arrows, they are where you want them to be. And so you can make a series of adjustments on the quiver in order for it to be fitted to you properly. Um, I have a video about that, but it's buried, of course, down in Instagram. Um, I am in the process of putting a website together because I get questions. People message me a lot. And it's like every time I have to answer this question and I spend a lot of time doing it, which I love talking to people about the quiver, but I end up answering the same questions over and over again. And so my hope is in the near future is that I'm going to have a website with better photographs and more uh, like videos, essentially, that will answer a lot of these types of questions. Um, but the basic components of the quiver are the harness on the front, and they are designed so that they're ambidextrous. So when I build them, I'll ask the customer if they want them set up for a left or right-handed shooter, but they can be switched at any point. So down the road, if you know you wanted to give it to your son and he was left-handed and you were right-handed, you could switch it out and, and do that. Um, on the back of the quiver, there is a top accessory pocket um, that I keep a small first aid kit in and a waterproof pouch. It also has enough room for uh, like your tab and your shooting glove and maybe an energy bar or two inside there. Um, and so it's just kind of like all your basic essentials, but not, but not big and bulky. Below that is the water bottle pocket. That pocket's specifically designed to work with a particular water bottle, um, which is the Grail water filter, one of my favorite products on the market. But it's roughly the size of an algae bottle, and it will work with a wide variety of different types of water bottles. I mean, on cold mornings, when I go out hunting, I've got a coffee thermos in there, you know, so you can put about anything in it. It also works pretty well for foraging. Um, so if you're out in the right season, stump shooting, and you come across mushrooms or whatever, you can pick those up and put them in there. Um, an accessory you can add on to the side of it is a folding saw pouch. Um, and it's, it's kind of designed specifically for those ones we were talking about earlier. Mainly the Baco is what I tend to carry in it. And then on the side, it has a paracord compression system that's designed to carry an extra layer. So like if you start in the morning with your jacket and it heats up and you need a place to put it, I hate tying a jacket around my waist. It just never works great. This gives you a place to roll your jacket up and cleanly stow it away. So that it's not a problem and you know you're not dragging your sleeves on the ground so to speak um and then there's a lot of little features um that go into the, the design and there's some things that i'm working on that i hope that are going to be available maybe by the end of the year if not for next year but the other thing to note about the inside is that i use a particular fabric on the inside that is in my testing has been durable enough to be used with field points, blunt, and two-blade broadheads. Um, I don't recommend three and four-blade broadheads because the blades sit in a more perpendicular angle to the surface of the fabric. I think you could get away with it for a little while, but there's no way I can guarantee that there's not going to be problems with it down the road. And also, just because I hunt with two-blade broadheads, 
Um, I think for traditional guys, in my experience, uh, I just am, I'm a big fan of them for multiple reasons. That's a whole other conversation. Um, and so just simply due to the fact that that's what I tend to hunt with, that's what the quiver is designed for. Um, and so for any two-blade broadhead, I, I'm a huge fan of A. Boyer. I use their broadheads a lot. They're razor sharp. I've been hunting with them for multiple seasons now, and I haven't had any issues personally with the interior of the quiver being uh, damaged or a problem, at least that I can tell. One of these years, after I've had one long enough, maybe I'll cut one open and check out the inside, but I've never had one personally, you know, uh, cut it where it came through or anything crazy like that. So the fabric I'm using is pretty durable in, in my own experience. And um, there's probably... Between the ones Cody made and the ones I've made now, there's probably 150 quivers out there being used. Wow. Um, maybe a little more than that. Uh, I need to. I can't remember exactly how many he built for me. Um, I'm coming up on. I'm getting close to 70 that I have personally built at this point. Um, my goal before the end of the year, if I can possibly get there, is to build 100. Um, but we'll see uh, if I can pull it off or not. Hunting season's coming up, so I'm not making any promises. <laughs> That's right. That's exactly right. Now, I have not seen a quiver like it. They, they're sweet, man. They really are. And like the more you describe it, I, that gives me insight as to what else they offer and what you can use them for. I highly recommend, as, as we've said, anybody that's listening to this, go check them out on your page. You've got multiple pictures of them, and there's all kind of different color variations that you offer, and I think that's that's pretty neat, too, in that, that aspect. Um, yeah, they look good. They, they do, do look good, don't they? They look really yeah, good. Yeah, you need to go check. Yeah, if you're listening, you need to check them out because they do look cool. They look like something something different, so that's always nice to spice it up. Definitely a unique look. I mean, that was important to me. Um, I, I like the whole wax canvas vibe. It, it kind of it goes, in my opinion, well with, like, the traditional aspect. Um, and, you know, it's durable. It's a good material for outdoor use. And the other thing to note about the quivers is no two are alike. I change something. Even if you get, like, if you, like, let's say you like the saddle brown color and you want one that's saddle brown, when you get one, there I, I always change something on every single quiver. So yours is the only one like the one you have. Um, and it might just be a simple webbing, you know, hit somewhere. Um, it, I, there's a lot of tiny details that I can change out. It could just be the paracord color. You never know what it's going to be. And then and I would have to have them all side by side because I don't really keep track. So it, at some point after I've made enough of them, there might be something I repeat over again. But in general, the odds of you ever coming across someone that had one that was exactly like yours is almost impossible because they're they're all a little bit different. I like that. That's pretty neat. I, I'm uh, I'm definitely excited about my quiver, and I think that anybody that's listening to this that uh, is looking for some type of a back quiver that's different than what they've probably typically seen on the market and want something that's handmade in America by you, they should check out your Instagram and hopefully uh, you get a bunch more orders. I know that obviously uh, it, it's hard from a, just an end, a standpoint of building them and having enough time, but hopefully you got some more people that will, uh, will, will come your way. I got a few more questions for you and then we'll, we'll close it out. I, I got a question around just exercise and eating healthy. Uh, it's a big part of our life and, just the way that uh, we, we go about day to day. I think it's important just from a standpoint uh, of like just your general health and your livelihood and 
how long you'll live. Um, and at the end of the day, we only get one body. And so you, if you want to be able to maximize how you use that body, uh, especially since we love uh, physical activity, being in the woods and, and trying to drag critters out of the woods and pull bows back. Uh, I want to be able to do that when we're old. Talk about some things that, uh, like for you, uh, that you found is rewarding um, just in, in the hunting standpoint um, and, and working out and keeping that a part of your daily routine. Yeah, that, that's a, a great subject that I love to talk about. Um, I've been, I've been fortunate in so many ways in my life that I've been I've always wanted to be an active person. I've done a, a lot of different kinds of things in my life that required me to have a, a, a training type of mindset in order to be able to accomplish those goals. And most recently, like mountain hunting, it's one of those things, you know, if, you, if you're going to plan to go out and go into the backcountry and, and harvest a big animal like an elk, um, you better be squared away when it comes to your, your conditioning and your fitness. Otherwise, you're probably going to be in for a rude awakening because uh, it's some of the hardest work you'll ever do, um, you know, carrying a big animal like that out of steep mountains. And, but for me, I mean, it, there's so many components of it. A big one's just being a father. Like, I feel super strongly like my children need to grow up seeing me have discipline. They need to see me having a routine. They need to see me taking care of myself and know that that's something that is important in life. And I just want to be a good example. Um, I want to be a resource for my family, my friends, my community, and I'm in a better position to be a resource if I'm well-conditioned and in shape than otherwise. In fact, you know, I don't mean to sound harsh or anything, but if you're not, you're, you have the potential to be more of a liability for, for the people around you than a resource. And that's just not how I want to go through life. Um, and then when it comes to hunting specifically, uh, I don't know. I, I just feel like hunting to me, hunting, it's, it should be hard. I mean, like today, uh, on the, like, if you look around at all the stuff that's out there, whether it's the super technical bows, crossbows, compounds, whatever, the, these technical weapon systems, motorized vehicles, electric bicycles, computer aided, uh, you know, technology, whatever it is, like, it seems like everything that is coming out is trying to make it easier for us. And I'm not against all that. I'm not, and I don't mean to sound like I'm talking down, but like, what you add all that stuff in there, to me, it's like compensating for lacks of skill and lacks of strength, lacks of, la a lack of stability, a lack of, um, of conditioning and, and, and human preparedness. I think we should have, I mean, all of our ancestors, I don't care what race or ethnicity you are. If you go back far enough, you, you have an ancestor that didn't have any of that. And they had to rely on their own body and their own community to be able to go out and hunt and harvest game to look after themselves and their family, their community. And I just think we have gotten away from a lot of that these days. And, and you don't have to be crazy hardcore about it. I mean, you don't have to like give up everything and, go out with a loincloth and a, a self bow, you know, in order to hunt. Um, 
but I think that there is a component of, of just like taking a step back and looking at this and, and like how much of, of my experience is actually me doing this and how much of it is just like technology doing it for me. And if I go into a situation where, you know, I've trained hard for it and I feel like I'm reasonably fit, I mean, you know, and I, and I'm 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 going in and with a fair chase mindset and and a way that I feel like to the best of my ability I'm I'm putting myself on the level of the game to to make it an adventure. Um, I just find that that an experience like that so much more rewarding than having every bell and whistle and every gadget. I mean, and again, I, I go I'm I mean we just talked about a bunch of gear. Like I'm it's not like I'm going out there with nothing. You know, I I am taking gear because. It's also foolish to go out there and not be prepared and, and know how to look after yourself. But I, I think we get caught up sometimes in all the stuff and all the toys and technology when our our own ability, our own skill, our own conditioning should play as much, if not more, of a role in the experience that we have when we're out in the backcountry. And, and it doesn't matter. If, I mean, it could be a, a, a hunt. It could be a a backpacking trip it could be a, a paddling trip i mean whatever it is um but i think the experiences are richer when they're more simple um and one of the best ways to make them more simple is just to you know I, i'm a i'm part of backcountry hunters and anglers uh I, i'm a i'm on the board for the arkansas chapter and if anybody else listen to this has been a member very long they used to have a bumper sticker that said hunt with the gods uh, with the quads god gave you and uh I, I i that's always just been kind of a cool uh way to to sort of think about going about you know your your experience doing it yourself uh instead of always relying on other uh tools to do the hunting for you and conditioning to me is just another part of that that's so well put. And I think we've talked about that a few times. And I know I've had some uh, just one-on-one -on -one conversations here over the past six months with individuals just about how much things have changed and how we often try to put technology uh, in the forefront and, and just adaptations to try to make us better at something instead of just willing to put in the hard work, like the sweat equity behind it and really we're selling ourselves short too from the satisfaction that we feel uh and, and that's in anything that's not even just in hunting anything relationships anything in life your job the harder you work for something and when you do find success just the more rewarding that is that's just the way that i think god's made us and it's in our dna like you said all the way back to our ancestors because that's just what we had to do i mean that was how it has been for so long and so much has changed uh, and, and I think that it is good that there are um, advances that we have made. Um, I'm, I'm not to say that I enjoy sitting in my house when my power goes out and it's 98 degrees outside in the heat. So I'm thankful for that refrigeration. But I'll say that there are things, like you said, that you can uh, you can definitely be intentional about turning that stuff off. And it, I don't know, it just it brings, it aligns you more, right? And your synergy, I think, in that aspect. So... Um, I think you, you, you put it perfectly and it makes sense. And we have that same thought around just staying in shape um, and then just being able to maximize our body and what God has blessed us with. 
So last thing I want to know, and I, I selfishly just thought this was really intriguing, was around how you have set up a wood narrow, and then you do a hardwood shafting to where you can take a variety of different wood points um, and different, even modern broadheads that are built into that, put it in your, I assume your quiver, and then be able to plug those in uh, on the end of just one, maybe one wood arrow or multiple wood arrows. Talk about that real quick. Yeah, so that's kind of like a – it's funny. I haven't actually done those in a while, and that was like a, a little bit of, honestly, kind of a phase I went through where I was kind of combining, honestly, like ancient atlatl technology and how – like I don't know if you, if you or any of the listeners are super familiar with how atlatls work, but many of – because the atlatl predates the bow and arrow by a long shot. I mean, they've been around way longer. But many atlatls are constructed where, so you have the atlatl part that's the thrower, and then you have the spear or the dart. And the dart has a force shaft that is pressure fitted down into uh, the spear, the shaft of the spear. Um, and so I took that that idea and I I basically shrunk it down into the size of an arrow shaft. And so I've done it a few different ways, but predominantly I use river cane shafting because it's already hollow. Um, you can do it with a wooden shaft, but it's a lot of work. And the only ones that I've ever actually done were bored out with like just a drill, not, not actually a primitive method. And so it sort of depends on how far down the rabbit hole you want to go with it. Um, but the ones that I made that I, I shot and, you know, have a little bit more experience with were river cane shafting. Um, and basically it, it could, I think I made some that were Cherokee flesh, but probably most of them were a three flesh uh, Comanche style. And what I did was I used a hardwood four shaft uh i think i've used oak i've used i like dogwood a lot dogwood is super hard um and so and dogwood actually makes really good arrows uh shafting as well if you're prepared to process them um but using something really hard like that and creating a tapered shaft that fits perfectly like you basically hand carve it or hand sand it um down into the arrow shaft um, and then you would half your point onto uh, the end of that four shaft. And most of the time when I was building things like that, they're predominantly stone points. Um, I am a, a novice flint napper. I, I've done a ton of flint napping over the years. Um, and so, you know, you could put stone arrowheads in there. You could put steel points on it. I've made some with trade points, just simple steel broadheads, uh, things of that nature. Um, so if you wanted to be able to carry just a couple of arrow shafts with you, but then you could carry, you know, maybe a dozen different four shafts with you and you can just switch those out. Um, it takes a lot of, of practice and kind of experience to figure out how to build them so they fly properly how to create the arrow shaft so that up on impact, they don't split out. They have to be wrapped very carefully with sinew um, and getting everything to be tapered and fitted, like pressure fitted properly. And so 
the, it's a super fun project if anybody like enjoys like building arrows and, and working with wood and, and carving and all that um like you know I, I would highly encourage people to kind of give it a shot um but it's one of those things that there's a lot of trial and error involved um and the other thing too if it's if people are legitimately looking at this from a hunting aspect you have to be even more careful because the transition between the foreshaft and the arrow shaft itself needs to be super clean. Um, because if, if you build that in such a way where there's kind of a, a sort of a stair step happening there, or there's a transition where you go from thick to thin, that will drastically reduce penetration if it's like a hunting thing. And so I would really encourage people to sort of, if they ever want to try something like this to to play around with it experiment with it and do a lot of trial and error before they ever tried to do anything like hunting with it i think um doing something like you know putting blunts on the end and then going out and doing some small game hunting that that makes a lot of sense but big game hunting with with a setup like that is a, a whole other ball game so to speak that it takes a lot of experience to evaluate in order to be done ethically yeah, it's it, it was really interesting to see it and if anybody is, is listening to this and they're like i don't even know what they're talking about you need to go and check that out on, on rick's instagram page because he got photos of it and so it was intriguing just to see that you, you came up with that and then i have seen them before on adelaide and it's not you know, it not being that and it being on the end of an arrow is, was unique to me but man we have absolutely enjoyed every bit of this uh learned a lot Tim has got a long list from upcoming birthday gifts uh, that he's going to potentially yeah. get me. So that's that's good news. Uh, and everything that you know, that he's just a, a man of many traits. Uh, and in, in today's time, that's, that's not typically the case. So I think that the things that you know are, are very useful in, in everyday life. And uh, a lot of this is just lost practice, unfortunately. And I think as years go on, it'll continue to get um, it'll continue to become more and more rare for individuals to, to be able to do these types of things that are important. Uh, so just thanks for your time tonight. It's been great. We've truly enjoyed it. It's okay with you. Yeah, we'd, we love really to, appreciate it. we'd love to close yeah. in a, a quick word yep. of prayer. That's all right. To end it out. Yep. Sounds good. Lord, we just come to you today and we're just so thankful for another amazing day. We just thank you for the opportunity just to wake up and uh, just have our health, Lord. I just ask you with those that are struggling with um, different health aspects right now, uh, Mr. Al Chapman, just be with him and get him back on the full road to recovery and out of the hospital, Lord, and uh, be with uh, Brittany as well, um, as she continues to go through treatment um, for breast cancer, Lord, just put your hand on her and just continue to just give her the confidence and just the willpower to get through this whole process and just uh, let her see the, the light at the end of the tunnel, Lord. And just thank you for Rick. Thank you for the time that he was willing to sacrifice tonight. And at the end of the day, uh, we know that time is uh, probably one of the most important, priceless things that we can give one another in this world. And I just thank you for him and his family and just the support network that he has there, obviously, and just continue to be with him and his professional journey and his per personal journey as well. Just continue to watch over him and keep him safe and healthy, Lord. I just thank you for uh, just this time and this opportunity to just uh, to share 
uh, just knowledge back and forth on, on things that we love and putting the passions in our heart. Uh, so you just continue to give us opportunity to continue to uh, cross paths with with different people in this world and um, just continue to be the center of that, uh, that, that light that shines about us individually. Continue to watch over us, Lord. Let us have a great evening uh, as we go separate ways. Keep us safe. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks, man. Thanks. Thanks, Rick. We really appreciate it again. Yeah, thanks, Thank Rick. You. Thank you. Grateful for the opportunity. You guys take care, and I look forward to talking to you more down the road.